just because you share blood with someone doesn't mean you have to be close, but also just because you share blood with someone doesn't mean that they know how to be in relationship with you. Yeah. yeah. Just because that's your cousin, your aunt, and honestly, sometimes just because it's your parent, right? Sometimes we want our parents to know better, but we also have to remember our parents are human beings who are operating based on how they were also raised and based on how they were also conditioned by their own community. Right. And sometimes it requires us to let our parents know, you need to know who I am. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, a show from the humans at OnSite. If you're new to this space and just beginning this journey, we hope these episodes are an encouragement, a resource, and an introduction to a new way of being. And if you're well into your journey and perhaps even made a pit stop at OnSite's Living Centered program or one of our other experiences, We hope these episodes are a nudge back towards the depth, connection, and authenticity you found. In this season, we sat down with a dozen of our favorite experts and emotional health sojourners to dig into the topics that are top of mind for all of us. Transition, relationships, trauma, just to name a few. Part practical resource and part honest storytelling that will have you silently nodding along, me too. This podcast was curated with you in mind. So with that, let's dive in. All right, friends, today you are in for an absolute treat. Hannah and I got to sit down with Mina B, who is a licensed social worker, a mental health educator, and author of the new book, Owning Our Struggles. I was so excited to sit down with her. I've been following Mina for a long time, and she just came in with so much wisdom. And as Hannah calls out in the interview, just so much peace. She just exuded so much peace. And as we got into this interview, I realized that so much of that peace comes from the work that she's done to really grasp onto the idea of radical acceptance. And so we ask her so many questions about how she discovered that, but also how does that translate into the work we do at Onsite, where so many people I feel like come to face to face with their past and their trauma and their experience and maybe relationships that they want to pivot and look different, but don't really know what to do with that. And so it was just so beautiful. Yeah, I am so excited about this episode. It was such a gift to me personally, and I just know it's going to be a treat for anyone tuning in. This episode just gave me a super graceful lens about how to approach acceptance when it comes to stories of our past, when it comes to relationships, and really when it comes to our family of origin, and how we get to move forward with agency and with more self-love and a little bit more peace as we find a new way forward in all of this. I'm so excited. All right, let's dive in with Mina B. So we are so excited to be sitting down today with Mina B. And I I have to just gush a little bit on the front end and say that Hannah and I have both um, followed you for a long time and really gleaned a lot from what you're putting out into the world. And so we're so grateful uh, that you are kind of sitting with us today. But I'd love to hear a little bit more of how you, you kind of refer to this in your new book of like, before you were Mina B, like this is what your life looked like. So how did you end up here? What did your path look like to lead you through the social work realm and become a therapist? Um, so pretty much my own mental health journey got me to this place. Kind of sounds like the cliche therapist response. Um, yeah. But that is my truth and my journey. I struggled with depression and anxiety as a child, um, pretty much all the way up until adulthood without being diagnosed. And so mm. pretty much growing up, not really understanding what was wrong with me, but just knowing something felt off, knowing that I didn't feel right, knowing that I was always sad. Um, when I was 16, I was also suicidal. 
And I started cutting as a way to cope with the different things that I was experiencing. And so I just knew that that wasn't a healthy response to whatever it is that I was dealing with. But like I said, I didn't have exposure to therapy or even understand mental health at the time to know that, oh, what I'm feeling is depression. What I'm feeling is trauma. Um, And so I remember when I was 16 experiencing those difficulties, I went to see my guidance counselor. And that was pretty much my first experience kind of being in therapy. Again, it was my guidance counselor. So they weren't an, a therapist, but I got the opportunity to meet with someone weekly who just sat with me in the things that I was feeling and experiencing. And it felt really good to have someone that I could talk to. And I think for me, that experience with my guidance counselor really shaped how I wanted to show up in the world and how I could help other people who were struggling the way I was struggling. Mm. And that pretty much like led me on a journey of just wanting to understand like what was wrong with me and what are the factors that contributed to the things that I was experiencing, but also how can I take the things I learned about myself and help others who also are in need? Mm. I'm so grateful for that guidance counselor that they were able to give you that space and ultimately changed the rest of your life. And and then the ripple effect that that has, that's amazing because I, as someone who's never met you, I know you've impacted my life and uh, that's just from scrolling on the internet. And so I can only imagine the ripple effect that that healing of that person creating space for you has then led to um, so much more for healing for other people. That's amazing. Um, mm. So since then, you, so you are a social worker. For, the, for those of, in our audience who maybe aren't aware with you, give us a little snapshot of who you are today then, who you are a therapist, you're a social worker, give us a little glimpse into who you are. Yeah, so after um, I graduated high school and I decided to embark on going to college, I studied business for undergrad because I still wasn't sure what I wanted to pursue. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had a sociologist professor who was actually a social worker and I loved her and admired her deeply. And that actually made me feel that, you know what, this is the work I really want to commit myself to. So I went from being lost and confused to now I know um, what's next for me. So I pursued my master's in social work. I went to NYU and I studied the clinical track, which basically means I studied as a therapist because as a social worker, you can do a lot of different things. You can do micro-centered work, even macro-centered work. But um, NYU really helps people focus on the clinical track of being therapists. So after I graduated NYU... I was a therapist for about nine years. I worked primarily with clients who struggled with depression, anxiety, and trauma. I worked in community mental health as well as in private practice, most like most of the time seeing adults. But I also worked in early Head Start programs based here in New York City, where I serviced children ages zero to five and helped them with their social emotional development. And by doing that, I was also working with their families and providing education to the teachers and the staff in the building related to professional development and just helping them understand mental health, helping them understand how mental health manifests in children. And now I um, run my own mental health consulting practice. So I did temporarily step away from seeing clients. I pivoted in 2021, actually. And so now what I do is I work with organizations to help them develop psychological safety. And that looks like me going into these organizations, doing trainings and workshops on different mental health related topics. And I'm also an author. So I released my debut book, Owning Our Struggles, A Path to Healing and Finding Community in a Broken World on August 22nd of this year. 
Yay. So exciting. Yay. It's so good. I haven't finished it yet because I honestly started reading it and was reading it kind of fast because I was like wanting to prepare a little bit for talking with you. And then you like kind of called that out very early on, on the book. Like you were like, hey, slow down, like actually engage with this work. And so I have done that. I've gone a little bit slower and I'm personally just really excited to continue to dive into it. But I'm like blown away by how practical this book is. Mm -hmm. Like, I think a lot of books that could be considered more self-help or self-growth oriented are great, very well intended. It can be really useful, um, but it can be a, a lot of narrative, which is so important. And you do use narrative really powerfully in your book. But you also provide a lot of really like, okay, let's put this into practice. Here's what this may look like. Here's what this looked like for me. Here's some questions to think about. Here's some like list of like content. Like it was such a good practical thing that it's like, could be a book that you could consider a workbook because there's like so many things to journal about and talk about with your therapist and things like that too. So it's such a practical resource. So I'm excited to dive into some of the topics with you today, but also if you're listening, push pause, go order the book (laughs) because it's so good and I want everyone to read it. So yeah. Thank you. I think even that title, like owning our struggles is interesting to me. And I think it takes a really empathetic view of the journey that we're all on. And I think a lot of the book is really empathetic of, hey, you will know when enough is enough. You can wade into this work. It's like really invitational. And so I think part of that, what I would make up is from your training as a social worker, because it really does take like a zoom out look at your whole life. And so I'd wonder Um, I guess my question around that is, did your background in social work kind of inform how you approach and help people lead them through these different, quote unquote, struggles, struggles with intimacy, struggles in relationships, struggles with, you know, your own story and things like that? Like what, how did you get, how did you approach the book in that way? So absolutely. I made sure that I wrote the book from the lens of a therapist and through my own background in clinical training. So even though I do share some of my personal story in the book, it is not written through the lens of my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to share my story only because I wanted my readers to connect with the author. So I also share stories of clients that I've worked with and they're fictionalized stories to protect their identity. But I also just wanted to share snippets of who Mina is. Who is this person that we're learning from? We understand she's a professional, but I think everybody wants to know someone's story and they want to know how did you get to where you are? So it was really important to me to... um, just share pieces of myself, but even in the midst of sharing pieces of myself, ensuring that it stayed focused on um, the therapeutic work and what that looks like. And so I I talk about my own childhood trauma, how I was impacted by things in my um, life and how that trauma impacted me as an adult. And I walk people through uh, different ways to understand the nervous system and signs our bodies are dysregulated and how trauma impacts us even into adulthood. So I definitely wanted to just ensure that people had tools that were evidence-based. So I share a lot of um, modalities in the book that's rooted in CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectic behavioral therapy, which is DBT for people who are listening and (laughs) know about that work. Um, So I really also wanted to include a holistic framework as well, which is why I talk about not just the individual experiences, but I bring in an understanding of systems and institutions so that we can be looking beyond ourselves 
when we think about mental health and recognize, you know, in the book, I say healing is a social justice issue because it is. Mental health is political. And so we have to see it from that lens as well. And so going back to being a social worker, really giving people tools on a micro level, but also expanding it to a macro level. Yeah. So good. Going off of that, I think you mentioned pretty early on, maybe it was even in your foreword, that like we can't talk about this without talking about advocacy and community care and mm-hmm. even legislative change and things like that. And so I think that that intersection of all the pieces of who we are and who our community is and all the experiences we've had is so important when looking at both our struggles and our healing because we need to examine it all in order to heal. Yeah. I really like that you chose the word struggle. Um, I know as both an author and a therapist, I imagine you don't choose your words super lightly. And I wonder if you could speak to that. I know you speak in your book and as a therapist, I'm sure you speak about this all the time, but that like we're not, no one's exempt from struggle and like kind of the power in owning that, like the struggle and owning our experiences and our traumas and things like that. I think so many people have an uncomfortability um, when talking about their past and naming it for what it, or, or about their present, it doesn't have to just be in their past, but naming whatever our feelings are. Um, so can you speak to kind of why you chose that word and if that's something you see with people that you work with? I share in the book that adversity is going to happen no matter what, no matter how hard we try mm-hmm. to be good. And regardless of all the healing work that we do, unfortunately, I think history, um, history of on, on earth and history in our lives help us to understand that adversity is something that we cannot stop. And as a therapist, it is always my job to give people tools on how to build emotional resilience so that they can increase the quality of their lives. And the only way to do that is to have self-efficacy where you recognize your motivation to want more Mm. and commit to doing more. And so the goal is to really help people understand that they are not powerless um, in every domain of their life. There are going to be things that are not in our control, but there are plenty of things that are in our control and how we choose to heal is one of those things. And so when it comes to owning our struggles, it really just means recognizing that our hardships and the adversity that we face doesn't have to define who we are. But when we learn to own the things that are happening to us, when we learn to step away from denial, when we learn to be rooted in reality and acknowledge the pain of a situation or the struggle of a situation, it actually helps us move closer to our goal of healing versus, you know, pretending that we're okay or fighting with life and saying life isn't fair and demanding that things get better for us. And I think one of the things we as people have to do is just recognize that hardship is a part of the human human experience. (laughs) You know, I hate, I I honestly even do. (laughs) And I wish it wasn't, but it's always my job to make people open their eyes to truth. And the truth is struggles are going to happen and how you choose to manage your struggles is going to correlate to the quality of your life. Mm, And so it's really all about teaching people how to tap into the mindset of radical acceptance and tap into the mindset of owning difficulties in life. And instead of always trying to be happy or creating this illusion that healing means I'm always going to feel good. That is not what healing is. And I think a lot of people have a, yeah, they have a misconstrued idea of healing where it's like, I did all this work and how dare something bad happen. 
You know, I hear that all the time and the way people speak about certain situations where it's like, I'm doing all this inner work. I, I overcame all these challenges. How dare something more fall into our lap? And, you know, that shows me you haven't really leaned into reality of what life is. And my goal is to teach people to do that because when we learn to face truth, we can heal better um, and we can find greater purpose in moving forward in life. But if we are stuck in a state of denial, then we're going to lead with more misery and discomfort and depression and anger. So it's really all about owning our struggles literally just means owning our truth. Hey, friends, Mackenzie here. I wanted to quickly interrupt this interview to share a short story with you. A few years ago, I was listening to an onsite alum share their story, and something clicked inside of me. I realized that while nothing was wrong in my life, I actually began to wonder if there was more I was missing. What if the overwhelming feeling of anxiety and stress that I had just accepted as my normal didn't have to be a part of my life? What if my relationships didn't drain me and I could actually set the boundaries to create the type of relationships I wanted to exist in? What if I could interrupt the narratives that I had just accepted as fact? Shortly after, I attended Onsite's Living Center program, and I started on my own journey of more. More peace, more clarity, more fun, more wholeness. I want to invite you to explore that more. There's nothing wrong with you. But what if there's more? If you've been considering an Onsite program for a while, or if this is the very first time, I invite you to dare to consider the possibility that the more you're seeking is actually something we all deserve. You can explore our offerings at experienceonsite.com or connect with one of our incredible admissions team members at 1-800-341-7432. They'd love to have a confidential call with you and connect you to the right resource for you. As we started to explore the idea of owning our truth, I wanted to get Mina's input on the tension that I often feel when confronting the pain of my own past and identifying my own struggles. This work sometimes feels easier, quote unquote, in a vacuum, but it becomes so much more complicated when other people are involved. We are hardwired for connection, so I wanted to know how she suggested we wade through this tension, regain agency without becoming a victim, and really walk into this work. I asked her to define a concept that she presents in Owning Your Struggle, radical acceptance. You know, radical acceptance pretty much is learning to accept reality for what it is and confronting reality with openness and gentleness Instead of trying to beat reality into submission and conform it into the things we want it to be to benefit us. So radical acceptance definitely transfers in literally every area of life, including all of those different relationships that you named. Um, radical acceptance in our relationships, for example, could look like accepting that you know, I have a friend or a partner or a mom who doesn't take feedback well. It's accepting that my mother is a combative person. It's accepting that this person has been this way for 30 plus years. They've been this way my whole entire life. And I need to just learn to embrace that this is who they are instead of 
living in denial and trying to force them to be something that benefits me when the reality is they're showing me who they are. They're showing me what they can give to the relationship. They're showing me how they can show up in the relationship. And so by them showing me their truth, it helps me now navigate how I am going to move forward in this relationship. I think what happens a lot too in our society and in our interpersonal relationships is that people show us who they are and we don't like it. So we stick around waiting for them to be the thing we want them to be instead of owning that they are being who they want to be. And the hard part about that is learning that When someone shows you who they are, if you realize that you cannot live in alignment with them, then that means you do need to either part ways or figure out ways to adjust to that relationship. And I find that's really hard for people. But again, by not doing that, that means you are not leaning into acceptance. That means you're leaning into denial Um, and you're trying to distort the truth into something that is beneficial for you because you want to gain from something. You want this person to be this thing because if they are that person, it'll make you feel good. It'll make you happy. It'll add to your life. You know, and the goal of this work around radical acceptance is learning that I have to accept reality for what it is. And I have to accept that there are multiple truths that exist. And so my truth may not be in alignment with your truth. And when that happens, I have to decide how I'm going to move forward. Mm, Yeah, that's really good. I'm wondering how you encourage people or what your advice is to people who maybe are getting to a point of radical acceptance around let's say a family of origin relationship or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. And they decide to change a relationship dynamic or draw boundaries in a certain area. And then they're open handed about it. And then things do change. Like their family member does get more healthy or they Mm. can approach things in a different way. Like how do you, I'm asking this for myself too, but like how do we accept things and also take care of ourselves as we stay open like do we stay open do we accept and move on like what is we're all human and we're all changing all the time and it's great to understand my own limitations and somebody else's and to not be naive about that and say like here's where our truths may not collide but do do you know what I'm saying like how do we live our lives kind of a little bit open-handed in this acceptance so we're not um, like forcing rigidity around it or making ourselves follow a certain path I would say that, you know, it's it's really all about compartmentalizing to some degree, because I, I think one of the first things we have to do is try not to see people as all bad. There are a lot of goodness that we can find in certain people. Now, there are some people who are listening and they're like, no, Mina, there, there's one particular person I'm thinking of who is just all bad. Yeah. And because yeah. you know that, then that that's your acceptance. That's your truth. Right. And so you have the agency over yourself to know that if I think this person is all bad, what am I going to do about that? Yeah. What, what are my boundaries? What limits am I going to set with this person if I know this one particular truth about this person? If I know that they are vicious and they're mean and they're volatile and they're just not healthy and they're toxic and borderline abusive, then I have to ask myself, how am I going to show up in this relationship? Or is there a relationship that could be had? Again, you have agency over yourself and the relationships you choose to be a part of. 
This also applies to whether this is a friend, a partner, or a family member. You know, just because we're tied to people by blood doesn't necessarily mean that we have to maintain a relationship with them. We can either cut ties altogether or we can learn to adjust a degree of closeness where we say, you know what, I don't want to be as close. I am not going to attend the family gatherings or, you know, the weekend barbecues or the birthday parties. I'll maybe check in with you once every quarter to make sure you're alive and well and things are thriving for you. Or you might say, I don't want to speak to you at all. You know, I name those things so that people know that they have options. But I also think it's important to know to the people you want relationships with, it just requires you to recognize What are the areas in this relationship where I have to draw a boundary? Because most of the time that boundary is with ourselves. Um, To use myself, for example, like there are people in my family who I love dearly and I have a very close relationship with my family. But, you know, people are people. So there are certain things that certain family members do that annoy me. (laughs) You know, I'm a human, right? And so there's one particular family member that I know who is chronically late to like everything. This person is even late to their own event, right? If they say that they're having a birthday dinner that starts at the reservation at 7 p.m., this person is probably going to show up to the restaurant at 8.30. And it's their birthday, (laughs) right? And so radical acceptance for me with this person is I love them. I care about them. I already know that if I choose to go out to dinner with you, you are going to be late. That is radical acceptance. Me not engaging in radical acceptance would look like I'm going to show up and then be pissed and be angry that you're an hour late when you're always late. Yeah. Right. And so in that moment, I want you to do better, but you're showing me what you're capable of doing. Yeah. Mm. You're letting me know you're not capable of being on time. So if I choose to engage in a relationship with you, I have to accept that there's a chance that if we go out, you're going to be late. And guess what? There are times where I realize I have the capacity to hang out with this person in my family, where there are times where they'll hit me up and like, uh, this weekend, I don't think I have it in me to deal with that. But then there are some times where I have the capacity to. Yeah. And guess what? I show up and are they late? Yes. And I'm okay with the fact that they're late. Yeah. You know, and so that's what it really looks like for us to engage in radical acceptance, but also learn to compartmentalize because it's easy to look at that person and say they're terrible. They're selfish. You know, they people might call them a narcissist. Right. Because we're using that word very loosely a lot. Right. And so. We, it's easy to look at that person and say, because you're chronically late, you hate me and you must not respect my time. And I, I've learned too that radical acceptance is also about not taking things personal. That person being late, they're not choosing to be late because they hate me. They're not choosing to be late because they want to see, you know what? I want to waste Mina's time. No, it has nothing to do with me. Yeah. They're late because it's their own, their own deficiency where they struggle in a particular area. And when it comes to time management, they don't have it, you know? And so that is what it looks like for us to approach our relationships where we say, 
if I find value in this particular person, what are the things that I can just learn to accept about them? Yeah. And what are the boundaries that I need to draw with myself? Because me drawing a boundary with myself is, you know, this person is late. So you are going to make sure that if you choose to go out with them, you recognize that you might be waiting for quite some time. And you can set some negotiations up there where you're like, you know what? Hey, since I know you're probably going to be late, just know that I'm going to order a drink or I'm going to order an appetizer as I wait for you. Right. I'm not going to like wait a whole hour before I order my meal or I'll eat, to be honest, too, with the same person. Because I know they're late, guess what? I show up late, too. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I actually show up late, too. If I say, hey, dinner is at 7, I know technically I should just get there at 7.30. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? that's good. Right? And so it's really learning to approach our relationships yeah. with that level of understanding. That is so practical and so helpful because I think so often when we think about acceptance, we do jump to extremes because we're in either like a self-preservation mode or I think a lot of times when people are like first awakened to some of the boundaries that they need to set or relationships that were maybe more difficult or or their first awakening to some family of origin trauma. Like they, we see that all the time. People come to a living center program. They were like, I thought my whole childhood was great and dandy. And yes. then they started addressing stuff. And yes, they're parents or their family did the best they can, but still this really hurt or this really shaped them or they acquired this narrative from this. So then they go home and they're like, I can't talk to my mother ever again. And that's not the goal at all, you know? And for some people you do need to have, I think you, the term you used in your book is determining certain relationships and that, and that will happen mm -hmm. at certain times, but it doesn't always have to be that far of the swing too. And knowing where you have ownership over. I love that, that example because it's so tangible. Like we all, I can, I instantly thought of someone in my life who's exactly the same and how I get so pissed every time. And I'm like, oh no, that's on me. I know better. And I know what I can and cannot handle in that scenario. And so just re-examining where our ownership is that and how we can find peace in our own acceptance and begin to move forward with people in different ways. So helpful. As Mina explored what it looks like to exercise agency, use boundaries, and have radical acceptance, I began to think about the times in my own life when I was continually frustrated by relationships dynamics. I know that there have been times when I found myself constantly activated by the other person's action, but I didn't give myself the permission to name it. It sometimes takes another person to speak it out or help us identify a violation or unhealthy pattern for us to set the boundary and seek something different in our relationships. I experienced this at my Living Center program, and honestly, I felt the temptation to pendulum swing my boundaries from having none at all to kind of overdoing it. I wondered how we could find the balance to let things matter and not allow ourselves to be struck in destructive and unhealthy relationships but also not to set boundaries that would inevitably be something we didn't want in the future. Furthermore, I was curious about the relationship between boundary violation and abuse. How do we know the difference? I'll unpack abuse really quickly because there's a generic way of viewing abuse that is universal, um, which is when someone tries to exert power or control over you that results in some form of harm. And that harm could be physical harm, it could be emotional, it could be mental, and it could be financial and even spiritual. So I, I just want to outline what abuse is so that no one feels like 
this is something I should be tolerating. Um, Abuse is something that will cause trauma. Um, Trauma is not just the experience. It is how the experience impacts you and what it does to your nervous system. And um, there's enough evidence and research to show that when a person is being abused, the way we define abuse by law, then that is going to result in some form of trauma. So I do think it's important to outline that. And the reason why I also think it's important is because when you say the term violation, however, that is very subjective. I used my example of the family member who was late. And there are people who I know who would feel extremely violated and and might feel, you know, discarded or generally hurt Mm -hmm. if somebody was 30 minutes to an hour late. Where for me, I can deal with that. You know, if you if you have a habit of being that person, then I adjust. And again, I ask myself, do I have the capacity to hang out with you? Because I know you're going to be late. There are going to be times where I'll say, sure, I'll have the capacity. And if I'm waiting, I'm waiting and I'm okay with that. However, there are some people who might be saying I could not deal with that. So when it comes to a violation, you have to ask yourself, what are the things that you are comfortable with? And what are the things that you feel really impacts your well-being? What are the things that you feel are permissible and not permissible? You know, because that is how you would define your violation. I'm never going to go around and say, everybody should just be accepting of people who are late. That's not a universal truth. You don't have to. That's something I'm okay with. But just because I'm okay with it doesn't mean you have to be okay with it, right? And I think it's important to unpack that too because I think a lot of us live life through opinions but we treat opinions as if they're facts. And our opinions are often in alignment with the things that we value. I value quality time, but I also value peace. And I know how to make peace with myself um, very easily around things so that I am not always activated by other people's behaviors. I can't expect everyone to be there because it does take a lot of work <laughs> um, to get there. But I always ask people, how can you learn to make peace with things? How can you learn to see a situation and not just look at it from the lens of hate or hurt or pain, but is there, is there a possibility that in this situation, peace can be found? And you might say, no, Mina, there isn't. And that's your violation. You know, you might say, I can't find peace with this and I can't make peace with this. I can't find anything about it that's comforting. I can't find anything about it that actually makes me feel good that I think I can like reframe the way I think about it. And that is when you say, so that's where I have to draw a boundary because it just feels like a total violation where for some people they might say, you know what, I can make some adjustments to how I see this situation. And even though it may have started off feeling like a violation, I realized that there's a way for me to adjust in a situation so that I have radical acceptance of it. And I see that, you know what, this person is operating as who they are and I can decide what I need to move forward and and find peace in that. So I think just using discernment is important, but it also requires a big sense of self-trust that I know a lot of people who struggle with trauma, you have a hard time navigating And, you know, my feedback to that is letting people know that you have to trust that you know what you need. 
Um, and that's why I started off by saying, remember, there are certain things that are just generic and universal language around this is what abuse is. But when it comes to personal choice, remember, that's what it is. It's just simply personal choice. And so you get to decide what feels good to me, what feels right for me, um, because everyone is going to have an opinion about what is right and what is just and what what you should do and what you should accept and what you should not accept. But we also have to be able to listen to those ideas that people share and recognize, is this actually truth or is it just their opinion because it aligns with their own value system? And what is my value system? And when I learn to discern what my value system is, then I can now branch out to the behaviors that I'm willing to accept and not accept because it either aligns or does not align with my value system. And because there is trust in the things that I value, I know that these are the things that I need. These are the things that make me feel safe. These are the things that put me at peace. Then I can know what I can tolerate and what I can't tolerate. Yeah, that's so good. And what I'm hearing you say too, and that I make up is that that's allowed to change, right? As I grow and learn how to create more peace within myself, I could enter into different situations with a family member that's activating me. Or I I could say, hey, I'm just not in a place today to do that. And boundaries can change based on the circumstances, based on me, based on your behavior. I love that idea. That's really good. Yeah, your boundaries are always your choice to make and your boundaries change daily sometimes, you know. So I think it's just important for people to be open to change and recognizing that as you shift and grow through different stages and seasons of your life, your needs are going to look different. Um, And so what you were okay with last week, you might not be okay with it this week. And that's also okay. I just remember one time we had an interview where someone said, you don't have to speak out all your boundaries. And that idea was really revolutionary for me to think I can have this boundary with just in myself. I don't have to say to you, hey, I'm not going to dinner with you tonight because you're always late. I can just say, hey, it doesn't work. And I know that I'm setting a boundary Mm -hmm. because of this, but you don't have to know the reason why. I'm glad you brought up the concept of peace because I can really tell that from you just talking with you that your radical acceptance is really filled with a lot of peace. And I was thinking about Mm -hmm. how people approach the word acceptance. And I think um, like even if you think about the word literally, oftentimes we're told like, well, you just have to accept it. Like just you're forced to accept it. Like it's a bad thing. Like we're being pushed on this thing. But then when you look at the flip side, like we accept gifts, we accept these things. And like you, I can tell as you're speaking, you're accepting Um, with so much peace and so much empowerment, like so much choice and agency in how you are choosing acceptance. And I was wondering if there's anything that you could speak to around the stance of acceptance. Um, Because I think some people maybe just have a broken narrative around like having to accept something versus like the choice and the empowerment that I imagine you need some of that choice and agency in order to feel that peace. So it doesn't continue to feel like life is happening to you all the time. And yes, there are circumstances that are completely out of our control, but then how do we find acceptance in all of that? What does that stance look like? The main thing about acceptance is understanding that acceptance also means honoring the things that you feel. I think the reason why a lot of people struggle with hearing you you have to accept things for what it is is because 
they feel or sometimes this can actually be happening where maybe if they're in conversation with someone, the person is belittling their feelings and minimizing what they're feeling. So therefore, it, it feels like they're being dismissed. And there's a there's a difference between owning that this is hard. I'm sitting with you in the fact that this is hard, but I'm also sitting with you in the fact that this is your reality. And so where do we move here, move from here versus you need to just get over this. Like this is your reality. You got to deal with it. There's a difference in how that is going to make someone feel centered and safe enough to really learn to lean into that practice. I am big on, one, teaching people to honor their own emotions first, because sometimes you are going to encounter people who don't know how to do that. And I think that plays a big role in having peace with things, because there are times where, you know, I've had to have this conversation with people in my own life where I was really upset about something that I felt I had a right to be upset with. And I accepted the situation, but I also accepted I have a right to also be angry. And I've been greeted with people who will try to minimize that anger. And I would have to say to them, I don't like how you're speaking to me about the particular situation because you're minimizing what I'm feeling and you're actually not being helpful right now. And that's another thing that I encourage people to have the agency and courage to say, especially to people who you have very close relationships with. If it's a stranger or someone who I barely speak to, I may just say, all right, thanks a lot. And just keep it moving because I'm not going to have this whole conversation with you, right? Because I'm not looking to you for guidance or peace. And so you don't know how to pour into me and you don't know what my needs are because we're not close enough. But if you are someone who I consider a very close friend and I feel like I'm being belittled in a moment, I'll speak up and I'll say, you know what? This actually isn't helping me right now. And I'm you're actually making me angrier, <laughs> you know? And I, I I think I also feel like we have to have the courage to say that in our conversations with people because acceptance, again, is also about honoring what's happening in the here and now. Acceptance is not dismissing reality. It's not minimizing reality. It's not pretending reality doesn't exist. It's actually learning to embrace that reality feels hard right now. And so, you know, I just think that that plays a big role in finding peace because when I'm dealing with certain things in my own life, you know, I recognize that this is how I feel and I've done enough inner work to recognize, no, you're not overreacting to this situation. And I always encourage people to think about that perspective of like, what do you feel in this moment? Is there a different way to think about it? And you might Say to yourself, no, I'm really upset or I'm really hurt or I'm really frustrated and maybe I need more time before I can be open to different possibilities or a different way of thinking about this situation. But right now, I really just need to own that I feel what I feel in my body. And when we do that, that is actually the first step to radical acceptance. You need to honor the emotion that is being induced and felt in the body before you could look at the circumstance and the situation to say, you know what, this is a situation that I'm in. I'll embrace that this is where I am and I'll make peace with knowing that, hey, this is my circumstance and it's hard. I'm making peace with knowing this is hard. I'm making peace with knowing that this made me angry. So that is what radical acceptance actually looks like. 
It's beautiful. I uh, feel like in my life I'm going through something that I feel like I've been like resisting accepting for a little while, a change in my life. And obviously my body knew I was like resisting it because I just didn't want to feel anything around it. I was just ultimately really anxious about it because I was resisting it. But I started the practice of acupuncture kind of recently. And, uh, you know, our bodies are amazing at holding our emotions and telling us what we need. Um, And I remember being in this acupuncture session and just like immense grief washing over me, just like that's the only thing I could feel was like, I am grieving. And I hadn't labeled what I needed to accept is like, I'm really sad about having to accept this. I'm grieving that this is not the way I thought it would be. Um, And that like very pivotal piece of me having to accept it. And then I'm also really glad you mentioned the the speaking it aloud to another person thing or having your community reflect that or being able to say to your community, no, that's not actually what's happening. This is it. Because I think that's that unlocks a whole nother level of acceptance and beginning and allowing you to heal. Because I know I was like, okay, this is what I can label it. It's grief. And then I went and called Mackenzie and I'm like, I'm grieving. Like, this is what this is. I'm sad about this. I don't want this to change. I don't want this to be different. And then a whole nother level of healing can begin to unravel because I was able to say it to someone else and they were also able to see it and say like, that's really hard. That makes sense. You're grieving. That would hurt. That would be sad. At this point in the conversation, Hannah turns to an important topic covered in Mina's book around why we need community in the process of acceptance and healing. Mina helps break down and broaden our understanding of community and community care. It's really beautiful. I know you speak a lot to community and relationships and a lot of your work and also in your book, you speak a lot to community care. I don't know exactly how you would define that and if that plays into here too, but why are relationships important? And especially for people that maybe are doing some healing work and identifying some relationships that maybe aren't healing or aren't as safe. Like how do we incorporate safe relationships? How do we invite relationship into the healing process when relationship itself maybe has been hurtful in the past? How do we move forward and allow relationship to be a healer? Yeah, I'll first start with community care. So I I always tell people community care cannot be defined. Um, And that is because it's a framework and it is a bunch of different moving pieces that come together to make it what it is. And so parts of that moving, those moving pieces are people, of course, um, looking at our circle of intimacy, looking at our circle of friendship, uh, looking at our circle of participation, which is the networks that we participate in to help us build social capital, to help us meet new people, to help us build um, healthy relationships. And another part of community care um, is understanding our social infrastructure and also recognizing our circle of exchange, which is our paid and professional networks. A community cannot thrive if there are not resources available to that community. So when you think of community, I want you to be thinking about, do you live in a food desert? How far do you have to travel to get access to um, whole foods or affordable foods? Um, I want you to think about greenery in your community. Do you have access to parks and green spaces? I want you to think about accessibility. Do you live in a community that requires you to have a vehicle? Um, because now we're also looking at economic inequality. So community is not just a sentence that I can say this is what community is. 
we have to look at community on a micro level, which is the vertical work of working with people and meeting people and being friends with people. But it's also that horizontal work of leaning on our systems and our society, because our society is also supposed to play a vital role in building up our communities, which is why we're asked to vote and we're asked to do um, all of this campaigning and asked to do all of these things when it comes to electing, um, you know, officials in our communities or mayors or whatever it is, right? We're always asked to contribute in that area because we need these people who are doing the work of maintaining their communities on a social and institutional level. And so I want people to think about community in that broad spectrum because community is more than just having a friendship. Right. Now, when it comes to the idea of just like relationships and discerning relationships that you can maintain or can't maintain, um, it, it just requires a lot of introspection and just asking yourself, is this a relationship that, again, I feel like I can keep it intact if I adjust how close I am to this person or has the relationship just officially expired where there's literally nothing there? Mm-hmm. And I want to say that doesn't require abuse. I would say that an abusive relationship is not a relationship at all. Um, it is power and control over another person. But there are some relationships that we have that we simply outgrow. Um, and it could be because we are in different seasons of life. Our interests have changed and every relationship requires you to grow with each other. We always hear this in the context of marriage. And the reason why a lot of friendships fail sometimes is because we have all this language for marriage. You're courting, you're dating. Um, When you're struggling, you go to couples therapy. Marriage is hard. You're supposed to grow together. And nobody has any advice on how to maintain friendships. Yeah, not (laughs) at all. None of that is mentioned in the context of friendship. And it's literally another long term. I know people who have been friends with people longer than they've known their spouses. Yeah, totally. And so the wound of that friendship ending is so detrimental to their well-being where some people will say, literally, this hurts more than losing my partner. Yeah. Because that is a friendship that is happening on a soul level, you know? So I think it's really important that we understand what it takes to grow with people. It takes open communication. It takes honesty. It takes trust, vulnerability, reciprocity. Mm. It takes being intentional, putting in effort. Literally, we hear, again, all this stuff is we hear <laughs> about a marriage, right? It requires the same thing in a friendship. Letting right. someone know. I, I know so many people who have a disagreement with their friend and just let it be. But how they, if they have a disagreement with their partner, right. oh, I, you have to sleep <laughs> on the couch. Or, I like, you know, it's this whole thing. But then yeah. if it's their friend... We're just walking on eggshells and acting like nothing happened or we're refusing to address it. And so it's really important that when we think of community care in the context of 
that friendship piece, that friendship framework, right? Um, we're really just thinking about the different ways that we can be intentional with our relationships. We can be intentional about honoring what we need, but also honoring what the relationship needs. And that could also actually trickle out to family. You know, as I shared earlier, just because you share blood with someone, doesn't mean you have to be close, but also just because you share blood with someone doesn't mean that they know how to be in relationship with you. Yeah. yeah. You know, that just because that's your cousin, your aunt, and honestly, sometimes just because it's your parent. Yeah. Right. right. Sometimes we want our parents to know better, but we also have to remember our parents are human beings who are operating based on how they were also raised and based on how they were also conditioned by their own community. Right. And sometimes it requires us to let our parents know, you need to know who I am. I'm not who you think I am. Yeah. You think I am, you know, this person or you think I'm the five-year-old that you raised or you think I'm the 20-year-old that you raised. You also might think I'm my sibling, right? Yeah, you might good. be mistaking me for someone else. And so I need you as my parent to know these are what my needs are and can you meet them? Right. And if you can't, it helps me use discernment to know how do I show up in this relationship with my parent? Is there a relationship that could be had at all? Because you might say my parent is so abusive that um, this is just too unhealthy for me. Or again, going back to that compartmentalizing, you might say, unfortunately, I can't have certain conversations with my parent. But there are also so many strengths in that relationship because I'll hear, I remember having a client once who would say, my mom is so selfless and would do anything for me at the drop of a dime. And that feels so good. But what also hurts is knowing that I can't have certain conversations with her. So instead of looking at her as all bad because of that one thing, I have balance where I can see this is just one area that even though you're my mom and I feel like I should be able to tell my mom anything in the world, there are just certain conversations you're not equipped to have. But I know in this other area, you are so amazing and so good to me. And that helps keep this relationship thriving. And I think when we can look at all people like that, if there's a possibility to, then that can also help maintain relationships. Mm, that's so helpful. I feel like there was so much in there that I want to continue unpacking, but I know that we are running out of time. Uh, but the question that I have that kind of came up for me as you were talking, especially in regards to like familial relationships, is this idea of belonging. And I think a lot of us have the idea that like we want to belong with our family. And I think I've even said this in my own family, like I know I belong, but I don't feel like I fit. Um, and so can you speak to, you had a really interesting idea around belonging in your book and how we don't, we, uh, assimilation is not belonging. And so I was wondering if you could kind of speak to how can we have two things be true of, I can't have these conversations with you, but also I belong with you, or I don't fit or don't agree or don't, you know, have to have these particular boundaries around how I interact with you. But also I know that you're loving. And I think, would you just talk a little bit more of how our belonging and our desire to be a part of our family system, that blood, it feels harder with family than it does with other people for me personally. Yeah, I mean, it does. I, I think it is harder just because um, our family is the first community we are born into and we are biologically wired to be connected to our family. So it's always going to sting 
when we don't feel like we fit in or belong with our family. Mm -hmm. On a societal level, too, they're supposed to be the people who accept us, right? And that acceptance helps with building self-esteem, building confidence, and just having a great, stable sense of self and also feeling loved and cared for. So I will just say that, you know, belonging is really just this feeling of knowing that you are accepted for who you are, And knowing that when I talk about assimilation is not belonging, it means you don't have to conform in order to be loved. Hmm. I I go on to share in that chapter, for example, as a black woman, this feeling that whenever I was in predominantly white spaces, I had to code switch. I had to talk a particular way. I had to drop African-American vernacular. But then I also had to drop um, Creole because that's the English that I speak in my own household being first-gen Panamanian, right? So I had to speak what I call colonized English because I don't believe there's a such thing as proper English, but that's for a whole different Uh conversation. (laughs) But I say that because that is not belonging then. If I have to become a whole different person Um, If I have to disregard my cultural background, my ethnicity, my being, just who I am, then that is not belonging, you know? And so I think it's just really important for people to also know that belonging requires acceptance of who you are and all of who you are. Can I show up in this space and feel safe being who I am? Can I show up in this space and it be a psychologically safe environment where I don't have to worry about being judged or ridiculed or people minimizing me or dismissing me? This is a space where people are listening to me. This is also a space where differences are respected because you and I may not have the same, let's say, religion or particular beliefs, but you still respect me for the views and opinions and beliefs that I have. And that is what it looks like to have a sense of belonging where I know even in this space, if we all don't look the same, we are all doing the work to care for one another. And we're also embracing that if there is a need to be challenged because we are operating from a harmful ideology, we are being challenged in love and care and being called in versus being called out and being ridiculed and demonized because that doesn't really help people change, you know? And so I think in the context of our family, we have to see it from that same lens. I think a lot of us disregard it because we're like, that person is my blood, so they're supposed to have the blueprint. Some people don't have the blueprint because, again, of how they were raised. Your family is a system, and that system is rooted in intergenerational trauma as well, right? So the way your family, is, the makeup of your current family system is what it is because of the previous family system that was that existed. So I would say that, you know, in your family, how can you, one, learn to embrace those differences? How can you learn to show up fully as who you are and also be okay with not getting your family's approval, right? Because I think also we feel like in order to belong, you have to approve of what I'm doing. Um, And I always have to remind people, you are an adult and you get to be who you want to be and show your family that you are the adult. 
show your family who you are and this is how you're choosing to show up and let them know that this is the respect that I require when I show up in this space because this is who I am. And if you can't respect me, again, we all have a right to our boundaries. So that is where you have to decide, is this a space I want to continue to show up in? Um, and I also say in our family too, we have to advocate for our needs and we also have to communicate with people and let them know when we're feeling safe and when we're not feeling safe, when we're not feeling heard, even when we're feeling annoyed, right? How can we learn to have those healthy conversations even within our family system so that if our family actually does want to show up for us, now they know how to, or they have awareness in areas where they're not actually showing up because they might think they are. They might think they're loving you unconditionally and you're like, oh, you could do a lot better. I know you say you did your best, but I want you to know your best is still causing harm. So if we have a conversation about this, is there a way that you can make some improvements, you know? And so there are so many different moving pieces to how we can learn to heal within the family system. But I think the root of those pieces are one, having respect for each other, open communication, open-mindedness, but also learning what your boundaries are and how you're going to show up in a family system remembering you get to do what you need to do that makes you feel safe. Hmm. I want to have you back instantly for another conversation because I feel like there's <laughs> 800 things we could talk about. I know you are such an expert too on systems work and psychological safety and mm-hmm. I know you help people and organizations do that too. And so that's, if people are needing support around that, I highly encourage anyone listening to check out Mina's work around that because it's so important. But all all of what you said around the family systems, I think is so practical and helpful and really empowering. We get to decide how people interact with us. We get to decide how we show up. We get to decide how we're going to, what we will and will not accept and how we will move forward. And I love the idea of the blueprint of you get to also tell your family like how to interact with you or your coworkers or whoever it is that they don't know until they don't know. And so we can offer a blueprint. And honestly, that sounds very vulnerable and scary because at least with my like family of origin, I'm like, well, I know how they hurt me right now. I, I'm familiar with that. I'm comfortable with that. I've done that for 30 years. So to give them an opportunity to love me in a different way is a little scary um, because what would it look like if there was a healthier approach to some things? What would it look like if I gave them the blueprint and then they didn't live up to that. Like there's the potential for her for that too. So I think it's a really brave and loving thing to do and a practical thing to do to like gain that self-love and say like, no, like this is worth it. I want to invite people or the people that you do want to invite into relationship that you have the tools to, to help educate them and how to best be in relationship with you. Mm. That's really helpful. Yeah. That's so good. Thank you. This interview with Mina was so incredibly grounding and practical. It validated some of my experiences in my own relationships and challenged me to lean into my own struggles in a different way so that I can practice radical acceptance of others and myself. If you have a desire to do some of this family systems work, to own the struggles in your past and present, to make way for the future you want to live, we encourage you to reach out to our team and see if an onsite experience might assist you in this journey. You can learn more at experienceonsite.com or connect with our admissions team at 1-800-341-7432. Thanks for listening to the Living Center podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love for you to consider leaving us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. 
It only takes a few seconds to navigate to the show in your app and select the stars to begin your rating. It helps more people find the show and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. 